You're listening to The One Room with a View Show. With Christopher Preston and Dan Orton. Hello and welcome to The One Room with a View Show with me, Christopher Preston. And joining me as always is the master of the macabre, the emperor of the eerie, the head honcho of horror. It's Count Daniel Orton. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Talking of head honcho of horror, Dan, what is coming up on today's show? I'm glad you asked, Christopher. So I think we teased this last week. This is going to be our um, Richard Bachman special. Uh, So (laughs) settle in. Yeah, the special this month is Stephen King. Mm. It's all Stephen King related. He's not here, sadly. Um, (laughs) He wanted to be here. It's that eclipse. He can't get in the way. Uh, So instead, it's just you and I. And now Stephen King, he's got quite... Just heard a thousand people turn off a podcast all at <laughs> once there. He's got an interesting relationship with... The press. With, the press, <laughs> with, with films. His films. About, uh, as, by my calculations, 60 of his books, short stories, novellas, you know, letters have been adapted into films. Really? In past, you know, well, since... So certainly since it's going to be an extended podcast. We, had, we, had to, <laughs> we could only pick... Four. Yeah. We had to pick four to go with. I mean, I should say there are five more currently in the works or like are going to be released in the next year or so. There's been, is there two or three this year has been? I mean, uh, well, there's there's uh, there's the Dark Tower, which we'll be talking about later on in the show. And also It, it comes Part out. 1 is yeah. coming out later this year. And I think Part 2 follows next year. Oh, wow. And there's some others as well. And it's a mixed bag, quality-wise. It is. Wise. And it, it, his adaptations, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about later on, are strange beasts in themselves, aren't they? Because some people have taken bits away, some people have reinterpreted, they become their own entities, they become less, they become more, perhaps more so than any other author, maybe ever. Yes, absolutely. So which ones are we going to do today then, Dan? We have picked, uh, as I said, we've picked four. We've already mentioned we're, do, we're doing The Dark Tower, because that's the new one that's come out this week at the time of recording. We've tried to transcend as many genres as he tries to, really, haven't we? We've tried to get a yes. bit of everything. I, I mean, think. I think, I, I feel, having watched these films and knowing a bit about Stephen King, mm. it, there's there's really only a couple of... There's, there's one big theme throughout all of his novels. I mean, whatever sort of genre he picks, the theme tends to be this one, which we'll discuss later on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we're, we're going all the way back to 1976 for the first Stephen King adaptation. Carrie. And the first adaptation of that. And the first adaptation of that, but there's been two since, one for television and another one in 2013. We skip forward 10 years, 1986, Stand By Me, by the great uh, director, by Rob Reiner. Following that, The Green Mile, one of my father's favourite films. I think we've spoken about it briefly. We definitely have spoken about it on the old radio show because yeah. of that reason. That came out in 1999. And have we done that in Dad's Describing Films yet? I don't know, maybe. I don't know. Okay. Possibly. Might be Possibly, yeah. In the, in the vault yeah. somewhere. <laughs> the vault. <laughs> <laughs> like a Disney vault. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, of course, The Dark and then Tower. And of course, the, the, the Dark Tower. So those are the four. Carrie, Stand By Me, The Green Mile, and The Dark Tower. All of which, I think, cover quite, as you've said, numerous genres that Stephen King is is known for. There's so, a lot to uh, do, Dan. I think we should crack on. Yes, let's. Let's crack on. We'll start with Carrie, then. Yes. I right as promised. Back, as I said at the top All of the, the way show back. there. That's, this is the first... Of his books to be adapted into a film, one of his first successful novels as well. It includes uh, an actress that we spoke about, I can't remember if it was this season or last season, might have been the beginning of this season, can't remember, 
sissy spot That's check. It. Spot check, yes. Is it's it spot check? Have I got that right? I think it's supposed to be pronounced spot check. Oh, yeah. there you go. Okay, so yeah. This was her other big film, really, isn't it? It's it's Carrie and Badlands, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the two big ones. And the help. And the help. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. And the help, yeah. Famously produced by uh, Chris Columbus. <laughs> Our old friend, Chris <laughs> Columbus. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so this is, yeah, this is Sissy Spotcheck playing the eponymous Carrie. She is a high school, high school girl. She, the film starts with her getting her period for the first time. She has absolutely no idea what's happening to her. A phenomenon, I'm sure, is, is common with a lot of young women. This being Stephen King, he, he's taken that sort of teenage teenage angst and that kind of moment of of, of right of passage almost. right of passage that phys- that, that right of growing up that as in the film her mum says you you're a woman now that that moment in a woman's life and has given it this horror twist it also triggers these telekinetic powers that she uh, up till now have lain dormant within her what doesn't help <laughs> yeah imagine puberty <laughs> I, I just got acne i won't yeah, lie to you <laughs> I, got, I got telekinesis <laughs> <laughs> some people have greasy hair some just, people like boy bands yeah. some people uh, end up the crucifying their mothers the yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this, is what, this is the this is the genius of king he takes this this thing this this i wouldn't say, i don't want to say mundane it seems mundane relatively speaking yeah but, it, but it's, it's mundane because it's so every woman goes through it yeah. you know it's this as we said this rite of passage it's something that all the sisterhood of females across the world can unite in is a common practice, as we said, the rite of passage of puberty and teenagerness. He throws in the fact that Carrie is not only a, she's an oddball in school, she's bullied, she's yeah. teased. You know, all the girls, all the other girls can do in the changing room at the time is pelt her with tampons. And then, and then yeah, she has this, this power within her that she can control things, she can uh, make move things with her mind. She also has... A sort of a religious zealot for a mother. Oh God! Yeah. Um, played brilliantly by Piper Laurie. Almost, I was reading up. This is the first time I've seen this film actually. This oh really? Podcast. I'd never seen Carrie before, and I was reading up about it as I like to do. I think it. that this film might be <clears throat> maybe second only to The Shining or Stand by Me for the film that I've seen most of Stephen King, and I don't know why. I just keep coming back to this movie. I wouldn't say that it's one of my favourite films of all time. It's certainly yeah. not even my favourite Stephen King adaptation. But I've seen this film maybe five or six times now. Yeah, I mean, it was quite something to watch it and, and, and to see what all the fuss has been about for the last 40-odd years. It doesn't feel like a 42-year-old film, though, does it? Did you feel like that? I, I don't know. I felt it had yeah. did seem to have dated. A, a, I think maybe the effects and bit. things, but I don't know. I still felt like even it's... I mean, it's still it's, univer- it's a universal theme. It's not, not the telekinesis and, and, and you know, murdering, murderous rampages. Growing but, up, I suppose. Growing up. That being, being isolated. Teenager, being in high school. It's funny that the being, and being an the politics high of high school as well doesn't really change. Like the haircuts, the dresses, and the dress sense and fashion and things do. Yep. You've got basically um, Slade at the prom, don't you? <laughs> uh, and uh, even Tommy, who's like the heartthrob, has got that wonderful like mullet. He looked like Pat from uh, Funhouse. I have to say, him and uh, him and Amy Irving, who plays Sue, the, the kind-hearted character who wants yeah. to help her out. That is that is a lot of curly hair in that. There's a lot of curly hair, isn't there? I didn't realise <laughs> as well that she was married Lord. to uh, Steven Spielberg. Yes, I wanted to touch on this briefly because I was uh, I read that Brian De Palma invited him down to the set. Really, because, I didn't know because that. Because I quote, there are a lot of cute girls down here, Stephen. Which I, I it's a bit weird. And Brian De Palma. It was the seventies, Dan. <laughs> I right, come down. We've got marry. a lot of cute girls. Oh, I'm not thinking. We've got Slade playing. I'll be there. <laughs> De Palma went on to marry Nancy Allen, who plays the bully Chris. Yeah. Um, he was thirty six. She was twenty six. Sure. 
<laughs> it was the seventies, Dan. Yeah, Spielberg just comes down to kind of, and apparently he asked out every woman. Really? On set almost, before eventually Amy Irving said, yeah, all right. He got uh, Sissy Spotcheck's name wrong several <laughs> times. Yeah, all, all I read was that uh, she was offered the part in Indiana Jones, and uh, it was withdrawn the moment they broke up, and then uh, <laughs> and then they got back together, and then... Um, the one they went, well, not the one that went to his second wife. Yeah. She's, yeah. And then they got back together and got married... And in the end, she ended up taking 100 million off him. And he was like, well, she signed this prenup on a napkin. And the judge was like, get out. <laughs> <laughs> so she, she did him for 100 million. Anyway, back to yeah, Carrie, yeah. all so, the way Carrie, back. So, yeah, Spielberg came down a bit. What, what were we saying? It, we were talking about our daddy. Oh, we were talking about the curly hair. And, the curly hair and the, univer- the, the, universal, the universal theme, theme of, of politics in high school. And as I say, it, it almost feels, you know, that there is, you've got, you've got bullies, the, the mean girl, there's this one character who takes pity on Carrie and wants to help her out. You've got the kind-hearted teacher, <laughs> yeah. Collins. That's that's something that has dated, hasn't it? Her treatment of the young ladies. <laughs> she was like Conor McGregor, wasn't she? Just going around jawing girls. <laughs> the amount of people that she just... She's got a mean left hook. <laughs> yeah. I say, that detention looked like Guantanamo, didn't they? I thought it had been filmed you in Bagram. You can't that in schools these days. You can't. Yeah. <laughs> More's the pity. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Different time. <laughs> so, yeah, so it, it's... You've seen it five or six times. Yeah. I've seen it for the first time ever. As I said, it's... I feel like it's dated somewhat. Not so much the effect. I, I didn't... There are parts of it I'm not... Wasn't so keen on. Anything leap to mind instantly? I think Piper Laurie... I say Piper Laurie plays it brilliantly, but okay, I think she does ham it up a wee bit. I think um, that's kind of the well, joy of it. It's a bit pulpy. Well, I found it? out that she didn't realise she was in a horror film. She thought she... she always what did she think she was she in? She thought it was in something, some sort of a black comedy. She thought that she couldn't possibly... She, this character she's playing, uh, Miss, Mrs. White, Margaret White, uh, yeah. Harry's mum, who is a, a fundamental... She's a, she's a zealot, she's a, like, yeah, yeah, in, yeah, in its yeah, truest extreme sense. Extreme Christian who doesn't want her... You know, hasn't taught her daughter about periods... Thinks the moment she has one, it's sinful. Because that's the thing as well. Is, is sinful. That thing that you said before about her getting her period. Carrie is very late to start menstruation, isn't she? Like she, she seems to be well, high in, school seniors in the high. Yeah, yeah, so she's probably like seventeen, eighteen. And when she does start to menstruate, she thought she, she thinks she's dying, doesn't she? Because she just starts bleeding. Yes. Yeah. I think um, Brian, she asked Brian De Palma, "How should I act this? How am I, well, how, what am I supposed to do?" And he said. Act like you've just been hit by a truck. You know, okay. So you got a truck. But yeah, and, and she is horrible. To be fair, she does act that perfectly. Then, but we find out it's because, as you uh, as you said, she feels like the blood represents adulthood, sin, sex. Mm. I quite like how closely they model her on that weird kind of um, almost voodoo doll of, of Christ that's in the pantry yes, as well. That. Like, their one. hair is shockingly similar. Like, it must be on purpose. Um, well, it must, well, it must be. I mean, we're here, we're talking about uh, Margaret White still here. Um, they have in the closet a little edifice, little model of um, Jesus or you know, Christ-like figure uh, who's speared with arrows and things, and he's ha- hanging in the, in the <clears throat> pose of the crucifixion. At the very end, and we will be talking about spoilers here. Yeah, it's a 42-year-old film, so... <laughs> um, I mean, if you don't... I mean, most people know, I think, now, like what we were saying about Planet of the Apes last month, these are the sort, this is the sort of film that kind of seeps into the pop yeah, culture. Yeah, particularly that very and, final shot, I think. Is, yeah, is, um, yeah, it's been lampooned for years. But if you know, Carrie goes mad at the prom, kills everyone, then goes home and kills her mum by, by essentially crucifying her yeah. in, the, in the doorway of the kitchen. 
and she's left in this pose, which is an identical pose to this model that we saw before. Um, she's trapped in the well. She's imprisoned in the, yes. in the pantry. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I think there. I think there is something darkly comic about the whole film. It, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it a good. Is. It's, it comes back to that central point you said at the beginning. It's that it is a very pulpy, bloody riff on teenageness. You know, yeah. the isolation, that wanting desperately, because there are some wonderfully serene and very sweet moments in it. I think that the, um, the Palmer kind of apes the psycho soundtrack quite a lot, doesn't he? You know, yes, they're kind of like slashing yeah. violins and things. But other than that, you get these quite soft and melodic parts. Even the part when she's showering at the beginning and then later when she actually does. Yes. Begin. I wanted to touch on the score. I wrote down in my notes that, that it was um, it's a beautifully composed scored by a man called Pino Donaggio. Mm. Um, and I wanted to, I wrote his name down because I wanted to bring it up and talk. The, the score is... What a name. Is, What's, can you say that name again for Pino us? Pino Donaggio. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. I, I don't care if you're not. Italian. Sounds amazing. Uh, so I assume the G's are soft. It could be Donaggio. But anyway, Pino here. <laughs> <laughs> Old Pino, yeah. Wrote, has written a great score. And, and, it, and yeah, there's half the time you, you forget almost. And I'm not sure yet. I'm still sort of having only watched it recently. I'm not sure what I, you know, whether this is a good or a bad thing. Half the time, you're not sure you're watching a horror film at all. It's only in the final act when... Uh, <laughs> the pig pig's, blood. The pig's blood is, <laughs> is drenched on her by the bullies and, and she, you know, she sees red, uh, literally and metaphorically, and and traps them all and goes on her killing spree that you're suddenly like, oh yeah. And oh. the music, it, you know, at times you've mentioned it's quite soft and, and beautiful to begin with and then she has the period and, it gets, and, it, and it, that, that shatters the illusion. And there are other moments where it just carries on. Like, this is a nice sort of, you know... Breezy. You could be watching a teen, dra- you could be watching a teen comedy or a teen drama. I think that's its genius. I think that's the genius of this film, is that we are watching just another rite of passage, uh, coming-of-age story that ends with these terrifying telekinetic... And, and actually, because for all of De Palma's excess, and I think as a film director, he is known for this bombastic excess. Yes. And, and he does bring that here. I'm not going to say he, he doesn't. Back, though, for but most he does, of doesn't he? The horror moments are punctuation marks throughout this, this movie. Yeah. I thought that was really, really refreshing. And uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to enjoy. I, I think there's a part of me that was expecting, because I mean, you know, I having gone into this film new, and uh, not really knowing anything about it, apart from, obviously, you know, the general plot. You've, it, there's such a hype around it. You know, people treat this as you know, this is a this is a hugely success, mm. successful horror film. The remakes have never come close. It made the career of Sissy Spotcheck and, and, and you know Piper Laurie's career was revitalized by it. She'd retired from acting ten years previously and yeah. came back to this. She came back three days afterwards, didn't uh, she? After the <laughs> after the film's release. <laughs> 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 Sorry, dear lord. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. <laughs> He's been tickled. I was. I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be a lot. I thought it was going to be very different. What it was. I wasn't expecting this kind of as you, this film that actually does, for the most part, from the maker of Scarface of all things. <laughs> yeah, as just well. kind of plods along at a nice pace with it. You know, Pino's um, <laughs> Pino's Joanna in the background. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, and then at the end, it then it goes completely. This is this is the department I was expecting. Um, and this is the horror. As soon as that red neon light comes on yeah. in the prom, isn't it? When she stood there, and he starts splitting the screen, and oh you know, yeah, that's all brilliant, kinds isn't it? Of characters go into all kinds of horrible deaths. Um, characters you think, oh, you don't deserve this, and 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 he really ratchets up the you know, the moment when the character Sue realizes that there is a bucket hovering above, and she sees the whole. You can sort of see the whole thing in slow motion. Travolta's behind it as well, isn't he? Yeah, underneath yeah, the yeah, uh, yeah Bloody Travolta, Zuko himself. Um, you know that 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 sort of inevitable 
she's seeing a car crash happening in slow motion. She can't do anything to stop it. Miss Collins is dragging her out, and you're sat there thinking, you know. And I want to, I want to bring this sort of this this point back actually when we talk about the Green Mile later. You're watching it, and there's absolutely nothing you can do. You know, you know what's happening, and you wish you could stop it. You know, I'm sat there going, for God's sake, someone just you know move her out the way. Just say there's a bucket, or say watch out. And could, old could, Pino's it, score is brilliant at that point yeah. as well, isn't it? He kind of almost combines those two levels of the spectrum. The way it changed, of... the way his score changes from when it's on uh, Carrie and and um, Tommy on the stage to the when Sue sees Chris and uh, Billy. I think John Travolta's yeah. character is under the stage. The, it subtly changes between the two, and you've got the, you've got the pleasant soft music for Carrie, and then she sees the bullies, and and it changes. It, you know, more juddering, isn't more it? The piano is more sharp. There's strings involved. It's very, very well done. That yeah. final like fifteen minutes. I still like the film in the same way that I still like Planet of the Apes. That even though popular culture has taught you and spoilt it for you, mm. as soon as you see Sue in a dream hovering over the ash <laughs> of the white household and yeah. in fact actually they don't really it's almost clumsy as a jump scare because you can kind of see the hand just it underneath the rock yeah, and yeah. i think the, the, the hand actually the throws the rock slightly over maybe i'm yeah, not sure the hd sort of <laughs> and it bounces re- remake, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's kind of ruined something yeah, yeah. it just bounces slightly off and then turns around and grabs yeah. her like as if it's thing from there's the a Adam similar family. thing in the in, when she goes upstairs when she's got back from the prom and we can all see quite clearly uh margaret white ha- hiding behind the doorway and she doesn't i wonder if in the original <laughs> 70s standard definition was maybe letterboxed or wasn't something quite as obvious that she was there We've oh kind, wonderful you know, but it I Remastering still, has sort of ruined some of the I scares. still think there is such a, a a kind of that dark sense of humour that, you know, when the hand grabs Sue at the end and she's screaming whilst brandishing a Spielbergian <laughs> napkin. <laughs> I don't know, there's still a lot to enjoy. Um, oh, yeah, certainly, certainly. It's a, it's a great film. And I, sh- I, I want to bring up, what do you think, going back to what we were talking about at the top of the show about how many adaptations there have been, mm. what do you think is the most well-received? Or the top five. Blimey. Uh, and I went on, this has got I'm to be going up. on. I went on Rotten Tomatoes. This has got today. to be up there, surely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went on Rotten Tomatoes earlier today and just wanted to see of all of them. And of the 60 adaptations, about 15 have actually only been certified fresh. The, the Mist? The Mist on there? It is. I mean, yep, that's in the top five. Uh, no, wait, sorry, no. That just, that just, that just misses out. Oh, just, uh, so Shawshank is probably going to be yeah. up there. Yeah. So Shawshank, Carrie... The Green Mile, maybe? It's not, just it's misses not. out. Okay. Yeah. Um, can't think to finish the. It's just, uh, there's a definite pattern. Like, there's a certain, like, there's a, there's a handful of, of King novels that have become very the well The Shining? Received from, yeah, The Shining's in there. Yeah. yeah. They've become very well received. And then there's a bunch that are kind of all right. And then there's and a, a lot really of crappy ones. Dross. Yeah, there really is. I think a lot of them is there, like, on, you know, like, made for TV. There's about. <laughs> There's about seven Children of the Corn films, mm. and not one of them gets above eleven percent <laughs> in terms of. I, I, uh, are all of them adaptations right. of the King stuff? Because that's the that's where we get into the murky stuff with King, isn't it? Mm. Is that it's like um, The Shining, yeah. Kubrick's The Shining is very different to well, King's yes. The Shining, yeah. and then King was always oh, rubbish, and then people loved it, and he was oh, it's actually really good. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I think even like The Mist has got that horrendous and harrowing ending yes which uh, is different from but that's book. different from king's because king dare i say as i i like him for what he is but I, 
I always find his endings are a little bit unsatisfying on in the books. I think Carrie's is actually the closest, perhaps. Is this a, a close adaptation? I can't remember. I think Carrie, the ending in the book is a little different. Okay. Um, I don't think as many people die mm. or, or, or it, it, the deaths are different. Doesn't she destroy the town? I can't remember, to be perfectly Paul's honest. I don't think I've read Carrie. Um, read them. But I will say, Carrie, according to Rotten Tomatoes, is a percentage of anyone not familiar with Rotten Tomatoes. It's an aggregate, aggregate sort of site which scores. Yeah. The scor- scorn of Twitter. If, <laughs> if you like the film and if you don't, then. Scores, um, scores films based on the, how many positive reviews it's received. So Carrie is sitting at the top with 93% positive, oh, wow. positive scores. Followed by, we're talking about this next, Stand By Me and Shawshank Redemption, joint 91%. Dead Zone comes in at number uh, with a score of 90%. I've never seen it, The Dead Zone. Neither it's about um, Christopher Walken getting the power to sort of you see, sold me. <laughs> <laughs> see into people's futures. And he, he, he touches the arm of a US senator, played by Martin Sheen, in a, in a, in a, oh, um, the Simpsons parody it, don't they? With yeah. Flanders and, gets it and ends and, up uh, seeing Homer destroy the town, doesn't he? Yeah, so Christopher Walken sees Martin Sheen's senator getting elected president and one day blowing up the world. Pretty uh, yeah. timely now. Yeah, does Christopher Walken still have that power? <laughs> or should we give him someone, a call? Or? Someone give uh, Trump a handshake, for the love of God. <laughs> then Misery is there. And that was one we were almost going to talk about. Yeah. There was, there, Kathy Bates won an Oscar for that. We ended up having a, an argument about, well, it wasn't an argument, more of a discussion about <laughs> what... It, um, make it sound like we're round. Yeah, yeah, like a domestic <laughs> we had over it. I want misery. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. We, we had this conversation about these are the ones that we felt fitted into the fact they're linked by Stephen King. Like We were like, The Shining, we could theoretically do a Kubrick. Mm. Misery, I think we were saying about doing something else. So yeah. Anyway, we should probably... Yeah, so it's The Shining. Anyway, I just thought that was an interesting... It is, absolutely. Little clip. 93%, say, there's these, though. There's these ones, which are, they score really highly, and everything else is kind of... Do you think it maybe is right because they were them. kind of towards the beginning of these adaptations, maybe, and people are just sick of it now, or...? I, I mean... I don't know. The Dead Zone and Carrie were very early on, but... And, Stand and By The Shining was the second one. Stand By Me, 86. Shawshank, that was the 90s. Yeah, fair enough. The Dead Zone was the... I mean, nothing, nothing really since, since The Green Mile has scored very well. We'll see how it does in a few um, few weeks' time. But anyway, sorry. So I digress slightly. Oops. Um, I've been umming and ahhing. I'm going to go four because okay. I, I, I wonder what it is about this film. Maybe it's just one of those ones where it, it sh- it's a snappy horror film as well. It never outstays its welcome. It's only like 88, 90 minutes, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and it, it really does kind of just pack its punch whilst it's going. There's a lot to enjoy aside from these kind of like cheap blood and jump scares. Uh, and uh, I don't know, I have this kind of magnetic affection for it. I'm sure I'll watch it another few times. It's one of those ones that pops up on Netflix and Sky Movies every now and then. You're like, oh, I could watch that. Yeah, yeah. I, I liked it. I, I think maybe I was I was spoiled by what the, by the expectation of mm. it. Um, it's certainly a very, very good film. Uh, I feel like it has dated. I, I, it, I wanted to spend more time with Carrie and... And del- I wanted to know more about the, you know her exploring these telekinetic powers, save a sort of a one scene in the library where she's seen reading about it. I don't think we really get... Yeah, and that proves any- it. No, <laughs> she, like, oh. she reads about three she's lines. She's very much like, oh, I've got telekinesis, all right, yeah. and she carries You on. can tell she's con- um, been brought up in a religiously zealot family then, can't you? She reads two lines in a, in a <laughs> library book in a, yeah. and s- must be true. believes it wholesale. Yeah. yeah, I really wanted to spend more time with Carrie and more time with Piper Laurie as, as Margaret White. Um, have you seen the Chloe Moretz version? No. No, neither have I. What, Patricia what, Clarkson plays. Watching the, this the almost guy. makes me want to kind of sit and do a comparison. Maybe we'll do that. One day, one day. But, so I think for the time being, three. Three. 
That's fair enough. Second up is Stand By Me. Yes, this is based on a Stephen King novella called The Body about four young young boys who go off. They hear rumours of a corpse in the woods. They go, off to, they go off to find it. Again, this is a wonderful sort of King twist on... on Rite of Passage, what, isn't it? Rite of Passage. What, what are boys going to be doing on their summer holidays? It's like, you know, this is a long final summer of innocence before they, you know, before they grow up. And... He's like, well, you know, what, what, what wholesome fun activity do boys do in the summer holidays? And they go and find a body, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they go and uncover that. corpses yeah. and um, missing young men. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we've all been. They there, obviously can, the, the, the the film marketing team obviously had a bit of a, a bit of a job trying to market something called the body, and uh, <laughs> starring four fourteen-year-olds or whatever it was to jam the Benny King song at the end, and call the call the film "Stand By Me." Yeah, I do like their version of it though the the riff that they do on on it. It's mm. not as jazzy as as Benny King's, is it? <laughs> it's um, there is a kind of willowiness to it. In fact, actually, it, it, I remember the very first time that I saw "Stand By Me." For whatever I must have, what they call it, a brain fart or something. Didn't realize. Yeah. I was like, "Oh, that's Stand by Me." Oh yeah, the film is called Stand by Me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> but you're right. Light that, bulb goes off. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> just frazzles <laughs> above my head. But I, you are right. I think that that comes back to that idea of like it's just jammed in there. We're like, oh, we can't call this the body. We'll call yeah. it Stand by Me. I imagine the marketing team was there, like, um, like in Back to the Future, just playing <laughs> in the background, like, you got to hear this. And just, yeah, that'll do. That's fine. Uh, not that I'm complaining. It's a perfectly, it's a perfectly fine title. I don't yeah. know if it has anything really to do with the, with, with the plot yeah. so much, you know, unless you know, they stand by the corpse. Anyway, so four, four kids played, you know, you've got Will, Will again, uh, similar to Carrie, you've got some young actors here on, you know, who, their careers are, Catapult the one tragic. Uh, yeah, I was going to uh, say it was an almost exception. mythical kind of. You know, they're they're they're, they're catapults into into you know into stars. Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, and Jerry O'Connell, who married Rebecca Romaine. Yeah, Jerry the... O'Connell <laughs> is by far seemingly the one who works the most. I looked him up on Wikipedia. Yeah, he he's still hugely in demand. Like, I think he's done a lot of voice artistry, okay. particularly with the DC animated universe, I think. He's played like Nightwing and bits and pieces. But oh. he still seems like a man who, who works solidly. Like, whereas I think Will Wheaton is, I don't really know much. I know that he's in demand. I think he, he does, does a lot of, he stars as himself a lot in the Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Because he did Star Trek for years. It probably, oh, okay. you know, but that must made him, really, yeah. I think. Obviously, there's, as you said, the, the tragic passing of River Phoenix, which yeah. has turned him into this kind of mythical Hollywood yeah. figure. Brother of Joaquin Phoenix as yes. well. Yeah. And uh, the other bloke who, I don't really know what he's up to. Corey Feldman. I, yeah, I looked no him up idea. and I think he's had a, I think he's had a few the, issues. The film also obviously, uh, also starred a, a young Kiefer Sutherland um, as uh, an older boy in the town who torments the others. He turns up when they find the body and claims he He wants to it. claim it, yeah. yeah. Weird. 1950s America. And you've got the mum from Back to the Future in it as well. The who would become Marty McFly's grandmother. She plays another 1950s <laughs> mum in this. She plays Gordy's mum in it. 
Oh, right. I didn't, She's I didn't the, realize the mum from Back to the Future. Because I, I remember, I, I watched it, 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 again, the amount of times I've seen Stand By Me, but it was only this time I noticed, and I'm like, a big Back to the Future fan. Yes. And so I was like, oh, that's Martin McFly's <laughs> grandmother. And I was thinking, that's quite the niche she carved out for herself <laughs> in the 1980s, <laughs> playing these 50s Get mums. <laughs> yeah, there's only one woman. woman We're going back it. to the 1950s. I'll call her. We know who you want. Yeah. Maybe so she's you, stuck there. They have to go back in time <laughs> to film her. I just like the idea she's got the same phone from the 66 Batman. <laughs> You know, they just pick up this red phone. Get me 50s mum. She's just there. Stand with her me. Russian book. <laughs> Stand By Me is one of... I love this film. It's it is a, a it's really a, wonderful a nice film. film. As you say, it's a coming-of-age film. It's my favourite film we're going to speak about today. Yeah, I think... It's I'll come I think straight in. Yeah, I think I will agree with that. Yeah. Um, it's a really beautiful film. And it. I think it, it uses the stuff that makes Stephen King novels or stories, I should say, magic. It has the same kind of seeds that you would notice in a lot of his work. Yeah. But Stand By Me feels the most different, perhaps, of all of the films that we're going to talk about. Well, I mean, today. there's no supernatural element, for starters. The other three have all got this this supernatural twist. You know, the biggest twist that Stephen King puts on this one into the sort of, the reg- you know, this, this, this idea of boys growing up is that they're going to find a body and that's not really particularly I was going to say the body much of a twist it's and also a, the body is an unusual MacGuffin yeah and the body is kind of inconsequential like I know Gordy is yeah. almost like a, very obsessed with it but we find that that's because it's a it's, metaphor and it's, it's linked not the, it's not the destination it's the journey exactly that matters. and that um, and that really is what it is the body is kind of inconsequential even when they you know they all freeze as they go round the the bush, don't they? And see the body for the first time. And we see it. And yeah. it's that awful dated effect where it's just a, just a bloke who looks like he's had a few just on the floor, even though apparently he's been there for however long. It's <laughs> just a bit of like crayon on him. That's a nice bit of decomposition there. But it, even that, we're like, yeah, there's some bathos there. It's, it's anticlimactic in a good way. Yeah. Because as you say, you, you care because you are trundled along with these four... Yeah. I don't know, are they all Rob, 12? Rob Reiner mm-hmm. does a fantastic job. I mean, this is, I was, um, I'm a big fan of Rob Reiner mm. and just the eclectic range of the films he's done. And I, I maintain, and I'll, you know, I'll fight anyone who disagrees with me on this. And he will. <laughs> Britain's hardest man. There's, from, the, from his first, so from This Is Spinal Tap, right through to A Few Good Men, he didn't make a bad film. Mm. That was seven, that, that, that's seven films, I think, he made. The King of the 80s. And everything he did turned to gold, I think. You know, he did, it, obviously, this is Spinal Tap. The sure thing straight after that. Stand By Me was his third feature film. Um, and Impressive. It, and we're still, you know, we're talking about it now. It's our favourite one, I think, of the ones we're talking about today. It, it's a film that will, you know, stand the test of time. And, and then he went and did, you know. It will stand by the test of time, but yeah, it's... Uh... <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> we did The Princess Bride and A Few, a few Good Men. Uh, just... He would, Rob Reiner just was like, you know, whatever project took his fancy. Mm. Nothing, you know, nothing. He wasn't really held back by any particular genre or theme. Like Stephen um, King himself. Yeah. Uh, they probably were a perfect creative, um, creative coupling there. But I, that's why I like, what I like about uh, Stand By Me is kind of, it captures what films, later films, like things like Boyhood have tried to capture, mm. which is tapping into that quintessential nostalgia and, what I love is the screenplay because it never feels like adults writing kids. Like even though these boys grew up in fifties America, yeah, the way they interact 
with one another is not unlike how I was with my friends in Naughty I, mean, I don't really Kent. know enough about you. I suppose there was much improvisation involved, or did they, you know, they sort of let the kids a go little and, bit. and riff on? I certainly know. think there's a little bit. I did read afterwards that apparently lots of what Quentin Tarantino does with his pithy, witty, popular culture conversations about nothing and everything yeah, yeah. are inspired by the conversations <laughs> had in Stand By Me. You have yeah. that wonderful whirling montage where they're just talking crap in the woods. And they're like, you know, if, if Mickey's a mouse and Donald's a duck, what's goofy? Yeah. And they're like, he's a dog. And they're like, yeah, but he's got a hat and he's got trousers on. And, <laughs> and, 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 and one of them has this kind of existential crisis where they're like, but what is, what is goofy then? <laughs> Uh, and there is all these wonderful little riffs and they're taking the mic out of each other's mum. They're having a cheeky cigarette with each other. That treehouse, what a fantastic set. Yeah, it reminded me of the treehouse in Jack. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's yeah no, I, I was just thinking that the moment I brought it up. I was like, there's something very, yeah, but very Jack. They really do capture that, again, quite like Carrie, that shared experience mm. of nostalgia and childhood. And it, again, like Carrie, with this sort of, that timeless theme of, of, of going to high school, being a bit out of place. The, the, the pains of growing up again stand by me set in the 1950s small town tiny town in, in the backwaters post world war ii um but it's 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 timeless and ageless and because, they're a bit misfitty as well aren't yeah, they but every you know i had friends like that as a kid you know gordy's a, a bit of a daydreamer who's lost his brother in a in an accident that, no. <laughs> no, you didn't know uh you've got uh river phoenix's character who i suppose maybe the most likable i think he's yeah great. i mean they're the, they're the closest aren't they yeah he's the leader of the gang and, and yeah he's, and he's from the the other side of the tracks isn't he he's a bit yeah. rough around Gordy the edges looks up to him he's, you know this sort of yeah inspirational figure. but he's charismatic he's got this kind of ultra confidence but we find out that that's a bit of a mask a bit of a facade and you've got teddy who's gone through this very very traumatic childhood yeah and is visibly affected by that um, but still stands by his friends. He still leans on his friends. And then you've got Vern, the kind of short, fat, timid yeah. little kid. Who... I think we're all Vern. Yeah. We? When I look back at my friendship group. Yeah. I, I, I do... How would we map onto the four I I love Vern, me? though. I think he's this, he really is anchoring them in that childhood isn't he? Yeah. Uh, he doesn't want to go over the field. He's a bit scared of this. His mum's always having to go at him. He's buried this, <laughs> this penny jar that I assume is still out there somewhere now. Uh, but it, it just is a really, really lovely film with um, some really heavy themes and moments. And I think that it, mm. there I say it ha- not has capitalised on, but is all the more emotive because of the tragic end that befell River Phoenix. Yes. Particularly as you see that moment of where he walks off into his adulthood and you find out that Chris is murdered. And, of course, that's what starts the whole film off. Yeah. Uh, Gordy, an adult Gordy, reads that in the newspaper, starts to reminisce. The windmills are forever turning in his mind and we get sucked in. And, of course, it then ends with him talking about the event and how they moved on. And, and that inevitable sadness that comes with growing up like yeah. I th- if i think about the kids that i knocked around with when i was 11 and 12 i don't think i speak to any of them anymore or maybe maybe one or two and i think that that just comes with age doesn't it is yeah. that you're, you're yeah. friends for that period of time it 
I suppose speaks about that larger notion of are, are we always the same person as we grow up? Because Gordy ends up embracing something that he wants to reject through his father about being a writer and being creative and things. And that's kind of mired in this idea of loss with his brother. Chris ends up escaping the bad, rough mm. moniker that's given to him to become a lawyer, blah, 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 blah. You know, so, yeah, it's, it, it really does tap into that wonderful nostalgia. Probably its setting helps as well. I, I don't know why America seems eternally nostalgic for the 50s, <laughs> don't they? You know, a lot of their great films, a lot of their great stories come from that time period. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I, I, it, it, just, it does sort of scream nostalgia, doesn't it? There's something the way Reiner shoots it, the screenplay, the, and obviously the setting. Mm. Um, not that, I mean, it's impossible for us to be nostalgic for the 50s. We were never there. But <laughs> I, don't know, there's I something think it's about, just that ideal, it isn't is, it? It is that ideal. The, 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 the lost innocence of childhood. Even the songs what that a, they, they what sing. What a great adventure they went on. And they go on this great adventure. And uh, the cinematography is so perfect. They've got those wonderful long shots and the wide shots yeah. of this rolling countryside that is only stopped by the locomotives that go past and yeah. i don't know why i'd love perhaps someone to email in about this maybe why the train is so nostalgic i always feel my most nostalgic on the train seeing trains is nostalgic you know people like richard link later tap into that nostalgia of travel by train i don't know why it holds this these this collective hive um, nest of memory of it is it's a very romantic it? and as you yeah. say it's a very romantic adventure that they go on there is something about that old school nature of boys going off on adventures and things like that yes. that it does yeah. well yeah no it's just good fun and yeah should we bob yes we should i'm gonna go five <laughs> yeah. uh, i love that i love this movie i really do i think i have to go five i was just thinking when you said should we bob i thought no it's got to it's be a five bobber. it's a five bob it film really this film is just it's wonderful. a classic as i say one of reiner's in a in a run of great films from reiner the man did no wrong until north <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's next month <laughs> <laughs> okay moving now on to the green mile yes and in honor of this we're going to spend three hours talking about it because <laughs> mm. it's a Three hours and nine minutes. Yeah, 189 minute film. And you know what, Dan? You'd never You'd know never it. You'd never know it. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, so this, is, this has got some history for us, this film. Yes. When, From our time in prison. The, <laughs> it in felt the, like it sometimes. Didn't it? It did feel like it. Uh, as long-term listeners might know, Dan and I used to do a radio show in Exeter together. And on one of our final radio shows mm. it coincided with one of your father's birthday yes yeah. and so as a birthday treat <laughs> or penance i don't know either way uh, we invited dan's dad on to give us at the time it was his 10 favorite films, 10 favorite wasn't it? films yeah Do you know what i was always impressed by the fact that he was able to create a top 10 list i think i'd try yeah yeah no it was it, he said he spent weeks putting it together and, and, you know, some films were in from the very beginning. Others came in last minute. He swapped loads of them around. But The Green Mile, I think, was always going to be there. He always, always says, whenever he brings it up, this is where this running joke comes from. That, you know, it's three hours long, but you wouldn't know it. You'd, You'd never, never know, know it. it. You'd never know it. I, I agree. And it, I think for a three-hour movie, and the fact that it is a, it's not necessarily the most mainstream or populist film you can think of. But seemingly everyone has seen it. It's certainly held up in very high regard with the people. Yeah, yeah, Perhaps absolutely. more so than the critics, in, in fact. Probably. It is probably too long. It is too I long. Mean, so this is, I mean, um, I should say, Frank Darabond is the director of this one. He'd already done the Shawshank Redemption, and then he would later go on to do The Mist. And I think 
Shawshank was everyone you know uh, puts the Shawshank Redemption in high regard, and then I think he maybe got a little bit too indulgent with this one. He mm. you know he kind of thought, oh, everyone loves. I my can do what I want. Yeah, I did one King adaptation. Everyone bloody loved it. Yeah, now I'm, I'm the gonna, King, Stephen. I'm, I'm gonna go in and do whatever the hell I want. Because um, I think he wrote he wrote the script of this one. Yeah, um, theme tune. <laughs> he played Mr. Jingle, I think, as well. Uh, but again, it taps into again. So this is this is Stephen King, you know, looking at the themes you mentioned: good, evil, with the twist that Michael Clark Duncan's character John Coffey could well be the reincarnate, reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Um, should we do a plot? Yes, I think we should. Tom Hanks plays Paul Edgecombe, uh, a prison guard in 1930s America. In Louisiana, I think it is certainly the South, Southern states. Yeah, um, it, I should. Sorry, it, 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 there's, there's, the film is bookended actually by an elderly Paul Edgecombe telling the story of John Coffey. That was the final role that actor did as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Dabs Greer is great actor. Don't get names like that now. Do you? you don't. It, a really great actor as well. I was quite moved consistently by his performance, mm. which, as you say, it's is only at the yeah. beginning at the end. But, but it's, a, it's a brilliant... But several days pass by... As <laughs> <laughs> he's telling the story. Yes, he's telling the story. Like, that poor woman. Yeah, I feel like I was watching it in real time. Um, yeah. Well, she dies at the end, doesn't she? <laughs> it's very, at, the be- at the beginning, she's this svelte young thing. At the end, we're actually burying her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's tell- so he's telling her about the time he was a prison guard in the 1930s, and, and he, he was in charge of death row at... Mm. Uh, Prison, I can't remember the name of. Shawshank. <laughs> it, was, it should be. Yeah, that'd be nice. That'd have been a great story. Because this, again, is another set of short stories, isn't it? I think. Or it's well, like... No, a... the Green Mile was written... It was serialised. That's it. Serialised more, yeah. So, so each sort of bit has its own conclusion. So I think it's a pretty good job adapting into a screenplay. And uh, rightly so, uh, Darabont was nominated for an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay for this. Anyway, to try and put the, the three hours into a sort of plot in a nutshell... Mm. John Coffey is accused of murdering and raping two young girls. He's put on death row. And then Mayhem ensues. Hilarity ensues. I don't really want to give too much away about this one. I know this we, we've sort of given away Gary and, and Stand By Me, but there's something about the Green Mile. It really does... Is it because uh, you like this benefit. one more? Probably. Yeah. No, I like, the, I like Stand By Me, but yeah. there's something about the Green Mile which does... Really, go in not really knowing. Amongst other things, it actually does have a murder mystery in it, whereas the other two don't have mysteries. They That's are true. pretty much yeah. like they do yeah. what they're going to tell you. Carrie, she's got telekinetic I mean, powers. They put, they put put pig blood soaked Carrie on the posters of that. For exactly, that yeah. And I think it says something like, was like if you want, <laughs> she'll kill you all or something. <laughs> if you want terror at the yeah. prom, take Carrie. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And stand by me. The the whole point revolves around like who kills the the and what did the boy gets hit by a train or something was it i don't think the body or something yeah but it's never really no but that's it's not the point whereas actually there is a murder mystery involved in this story amongst other things we find out that john coffee is innocent and Mm. that's hinted at from the very beginning yeah but who is the real killer and rapist of these two little girls But but as i say it was it 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 tackles what it means to be good there's not much nuance no, it does. Uh, <laughs> I will say first and foremost, I do really like The Green Mile as a mm. film. And I think that Dan's dad, although we've been a bit facetious about it, does really hit the nail on the head when he says it's a three hour movie that you it just whisks by. 
so I watched it yesterday morning, in fact, and it, I was kind of surprised. I mean, I watched it very early yesterday morning and was surprised at how much of the day I still had left. <laughs> but I, I was kind of like, oh, wow, we are coming up towards the end now. And three hours had gone by, in fact. Mm. And I think that it's a very skilled filmmaker and actors and story that can suck yeah. you into us. I mean, it's pretty much set entirely in this death row. Yeah, uh, on a corridor. Wing, in a cor- it's know, basically yeah, yeah. set on one corridor. It's almost like a play in that way. I will say that I do have some issues with it, and you're right; it's not a nuance. There's no, there's, there's no subtlety at all. It really yeah. does kind That's of. That's what I mean about Frank Darabont the kind of being like, "Well, Shawshank went well, so I'm just going to go. <laughs> <laughs> I can do whatever I want now. <laughs> now, and it's just you know. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so they discover that coffee can he he can he can make miracles, and it's all about how he has an effect on all the lives of the other characters. We have got Tom Hanks as Paul Edgecombe. Um, David Morse, who I don't think does enough, really, does he? But he's very good. Whenever Whatever he's in, David Morse is great. He plays another prison guard called uh, Brutus, Brutal Hal. But he's not brutal at all. No, he's, he's a general he's, giant, he's, he's isn't he? He's a general he? giant. Um, Michael Clark Duncan plays, uh, plays the late, John The great Michael yeah. Clark Duncan. It's strange to think. Mm. He passed a few years ago, didn't he? It's sad. There's a c- couple of um, cast members in this that have actually, you know, that are, you, you look look it up and they go, oh, my God, they're actually dead. They're actually I mean, you've gone, got yeah. Dabs Greer, but yeah, Michael Clark Duncan... Uh, Michael Jeter, who plays uh, Dell, the the Cajun, he died officer. only a few years after this was released, mm. wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was surprised. I actually only found out about his death after wikiing after this film because yeah. I thought, you know what, I haven't seen him in enough films, and I thought, oh, yeah, because he's, he's, he's dead, not been around yeah. to do them. Uh, James Cromwell is in this as the warden. I love James Cromwell. I like James um, Cromwell. He's, he, is he's he currently very... in jail at the moment or something? Isn't he? <laughs> prefer, yeah, but, uh, for a week or something. Was <laughs> he protested? Pretty... Yeah, against... something like that. He was yeah. an, he's an environmental uh, environmentalist. He's not yeah. done anything <laughs> dreadful. <laughs> yeah. Bonnie Hunt, who is probably better known to most of our generation as doing various voices in Pixar films. She's Sally the car in Cars. She's the Black Widow spider in, in A Bug's Life. But she does the occasional live action, live action thing. Patricia Clarkson is in it briefly, in, a, in an, er, I think an early role before she sort of became, became, bigger, yeah. you know, became well known. And, and Doug Hutchison before he, in fact, he was quite a, he was quite a, a not a, not a bad looking man. Now yeah. he's, He's sort of aged horribly, and his, his well, his his personal life is quite sordid, isn't it? Yeah, but ma- we're not here to talk about it. I I life. met him briefly once, actually. Oh yeah, uh, in on Hollywood Boulevard, and it, this will sound really glitzy. It wasn't at all. It really wasn't. Uh, we, when I was backpacking with my friend, uh, we were walking along in honestly what can only be described as the worst part of <laughs> Hollywood Boulevard. And if you, I don't know, have you been to Hollywood Boulevard before? No, never. It really no. is terrible. It really is one of the worst places on earth. <laughs> uh, and we were walking along and I can't remember. I think the story had just broken about the fact that he'd married that 16 year old when he was like in his fifties. Yes. And we saw yeah. them walking along together and it was a peculiar image. You know, weird. It was, it was a strange image to see. Anyway, now he so, plays, he plays Percy, who is a sadistic prison. He's guy. the kind of, primary and antagonist does something I suppose. just so horrible mm. about midway through the film yeah he's um, consistently vile in the film isn't he and and nope does... i said it in the film <laughs> in, yes. in the film and percy does get his just desserts this is what i mean about this but the nuance thing is a bit like yeah. everyone who should be punished gets punished because they're bad and mm. the good people get um you get fried in the electric chair <laughs> <laughs> it's a story um, for so, all ages uh i wanted to talk about the, the clever camera trickery in this because Michael Clark Duncan, who was already, he's about, he's six foot four, was six foot four, I should say. Mm. Um, they make him look eight feet tall in this film. Yeah. Um, when in reality, he's a good inch or so shorter than 
James Cromwell, who is an you know James Cromwell is he's a very tall man. He's a beanpole, isn't seven. he? Yeah, he really is. <laughs> uh, and like they, the Peter Crouch these, of Hollywood. These scenes where they, which they have together when in the film, and and he's like looking up at at at, at John Coffey and David he, Morse is the same height as Michael Clark Duncan, and still the, the, the way they because when Coffey comes in. It, that, that's an entrance and that a half, is it, yeah. isn't it? You know, you he can't fit him in the camera frame. He really he is. He's kind of smashes in almost like the Hulk, but he is a gentle giant, isn't he? You mm. can kind of even see. Well, he's simple. He's supposed simple to be minded, simple yeah. minded. Um... He's like, he reminds me a lot of the performance and the, the character reminds me almost like a supernatural uh, Lenny from yeah. A Voice yeah. and Men. I'm yeah. sure that there's definitely something they tapped into there, it being a southern story, um, the idea yeah. of the murder and stuff like that. But yeah. So, yeah, so here we have so you've got this, this band of characters and they all sort of it's how John Coffey affects them and then there's this sort of but there's this sprinkling of magical realism in the fact that you know in this rather mundane in, in, in this death row wing yeah, of a prison in Louisiana in the least magical place on yeah. earth he can he can perform miracles and does and does and that's pretty much it really isn't it and, you know um, this is a deeply uh, you know despite this, the, despite the lack of nuance this is a deeply moving film. Um, I found myself, uh, you know, we, we, there's the the scene where uh, one of the prison inmates is 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 executed, and it goes wrong. Is I think we can talk about that scene. One of the well, yeah, and it, it's one of the it, it is it's horrible. Mm. And I'm you know I've sat there still. You know, this is not the first time I've seen it, but you sit there and you've got I've got my hand over my mouth, mm. you know, and, and you're. Because it's visceral, isn't it's, it? it? It's so well done. And even the way that that's scripted and shot is, I don't want to say poetic, mm. but I think you can pack me up there as a poetry to it. Like, oh, yeah. um, Are we going to spoil it? I think So if you haven't seen The Green Mile and you don't want to have it spoiled, yeah. sort of skip maybe a few Just a couple, couple of, minutes. of minutes. So Dell, as they, you know, they're all in death row. Dell ticket comes, comes up, up yeah. yeah. And uh, he he's off to be executed, and for various reasons, him and Percy have had these spats. Yes, they and don't get along. Percy, being the spiteful prick that he is, uh, decides that he's going to win the contest that's between them. This kind of two in a row, despite the fact that he's up against a man who is on death row. Yeah, he's, you know, and he's, he's clearly mentally ill as well. He's not going to win. He's not going to win. But he still wants that final bit. And uh, yeah. there are several sadistic things he does, which I won't spoil, you know, if you're still here. But instead of putting the water on him, which is what kills yeah, him so, quicker, so they're, essentially. They're, 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 yeah, they, they, they rehearse each execution. And one of the key components of this is you put a wet sponge on their head and it's to, to ensure the electric charge goes directly to their brain, and, killing them quicker. Yeah. If you don't do that, they will literally fry in the chair. And that's so, what happens to poor and, Dell. And... And yeah, Percy is put in charge of this particular execution. Purposely a, does not put yeah, the sponge or puts a dry sponge actually on his a head. Dry sponge on his head. They don't, and, and, and it goes horrible. And it is, as you say, visceral is a very good, is, is the perfect way of describing it. it and and Darabont. And the way that they, they you don't said, shy away. the way that you said that De Palma and uh, De Palma captures that moment where you're desperately... Mm, this is what I mean. You're this, desperate to try and do moment. something. This you're is the moment, isn't it? Thing, for God's sake. Because even the characters are... Even yeah. the, Tom Hanks' character turns around and says, we need to do something here. And they're like, we, we can't. You, you just have to... Con- it's already been... You t- have to complete. It's already been turned on. You can't... Yeah. You can't, they can't do it. Like, and it's just horrible. And we watch this man literally combust. Um, yeah, he, because, he's set on fire. Because, and, and they've done such a good job in the rest of the film of... of I mean, Michael Jetta... 
and 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 the character of Dell is is you know yes he's uh, he's a wrong he's a murderer and I think it's not touched on the film but the books make it clear that he is he he's a murderer and a rapist oh really uh, as far as I'm aware and he's nasty and he deserves to be you know he's, he's there for a reason he's not like it's not like he's mistakenly there mm. but you he's a likable character. Yeah, in the in the in the in the setting of the of, of Death Row on the Green Mile, he's he's not he's not nasty or you know unlike um, Billy the Kid, Sam Rockwell's character. That comes he's great in, in this film as well, isn't he? Who comes in and is and is just awful, and Percy is awful. Dell is a likable. It's all relative, know, I suppose, man, isn't it? Even yeah. with that, yeah. And um, when he's, he's kind of and cutesy. it feels like such a, you're sat there thinking this is such a horrible, you know, this this shouldn't happen. What's going on? It, there's a, that line when they start talking about the smell, and it's it's strange, isn't it, that it's so evocative that you're almost there having to watch this part. Mm. I think that's where the three hours actually ends up being a a, a plus point. It's, it does feel epic in nature. It does feel like we get to know these characters so well, yes. which is a massive criticism of I've got of the next film. Uh, it's we're so microwaved through the Dark Tower, which I know we'll talk about that in a moment. But with the Green Mile, we spend so much time just in this corridor. I yeah. I felt like I, by the end I knew Tom Hanks's character inside out. Uh, I, I feel like I knew every single one of the guards. I knew Percy. I know uh, John Coffey. I know yeah. Dell. And you care about. And you do care about them. You so when they're them. inevitably executed, because you know that most of the people are going to yeah. be dead by the end of it. At the end of because it's the nature of the thing, you know. Um, it's like Game of Thrones. <laughs> you know, <laughs> most of these characters are going to end up dead by the end of it. But you yeah. do genuinely care. And it, it, it's funny that you said about Dell being a murderer and a rapist and probably the wise decision to keep that from the audience in the film because you have he has this relationship with the mouse mm. mr jingles it's all very, yeah he? it's all very much you know yeah aside from john coffee we don't really know what and and later um wild bill we don't really know what any of them have have done to get there yeah which um, i think is purposeful because it actually we kind of end up seeing the story through paul's eyes and paul almost purposefully doesn't he tries to shield himself from that because yeah. he runs it like an intensive care ward we speak we don't shout you know, he wants, he knows that any stress. Yeah. It's can... as if, you know, what would happen if Tom Hanks was put in charge of it? <laughs> he really, yeah, it's he really Tom is. Hanks yeah. Run it. yeah. He, run, he runs it like a youth hostel in Switzerland, <laughs> doesn't he? But, uh, it, you know, I, I like that. Um, apart from the, the, it is a little bit bum numbing, perhaps in, in places like, well, yeah, it is. I agree. It is a shade too long. It's probably about 20 minutes, half an hour too long. Mm. I don't like the neatness of the mur- the murder mystery. I think it's too neat. I think the conclusion of that is a little bit too... I think it comes back to the idea of you saying that there is no nuance yeah. here, is that I, I, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I suppose it kind of is spoiled. I mean, you see it coming a mile. You do. You really? And I think that's my real annoyance with it, is that they kind of do play it as a murder mystery, and it's so inevitable as to who yeah. is the real killer. Um, and as if you'd let that person in anywhere near your house. <laughs> but, but even in the flashbacks, he looks. Can, can we spoil that for a moment, just so we can talk about it? All right, again, we're spoiling this nineteen-year-old film. Um, come back in a couple of minutes. It turns out that it's the most one of the most heinous people on the ward. It ends up being Wild Bill. It ends up yeah. being Sam Rockwell's character. As Dan says, you see at the moment he's chucked in the jail. It's going to be him because uh, it kind of has to. They be. say like he's been running wild around the state. Of course, and, and yeah. because it, because they play it as a mystery, it's got to be him or Percy. And Percy's too much of a slimy, snivelling bully to be that. Yes, a, a child yeah. rapist and murderer. 
Uh, and so it's, it's got to be Sam Rockwell's character. And, and as Dan says, they show these kind of grainy flashbacks in which he's basically drooling and licking his lips yeah, and teeth. Yeah, and... yeah. He's, he's helping. He's, he's helping the farm. The father of these two daughters paint his barn. Mm. And then, he, for some ungodly reason, they invite this nasty, you know, yellow-toothed pedo killer, obviously a maniac, <laughs> yeah. in to have dinner with them. Yeah. Uh, I just, yeah. We'll just leave that door unlocked as well, Wild Bill. Well, I suppose if you look at <laughs> calling him Wild Bill. <laughs> yeah, well, 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 oh, well, oh, oh, Killer Bill. Yeah, Killer Bill. Child, child Killer, killer Bill. Bill. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. Old Bill the yeah. Child Killer. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can come paint our house and, and yeah. sleep in the same room as our it kids. It says here you were a rapist for the last two years. Have you got any references? So, or? Hey, it was the Depression. Times were high. It was, the, it was, it was different. Um, it you, was 40 years you, before curly hair and rock and roll, Dan. Put it into the put it into its historical context. You know, this is the height of, I mean, this is like Grapes of Wrath territory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I don't think that's really touched upon enough, is it? That, that the, Not in the three the, hours that no, it, it ends up <laughs> boiling for, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it, it's, it's hard to... You know, I, I can't be much more critical. No, it, I think that they're, they're quibbles more than anything. I think it, I do like this film a lot. Yeah. And, it, and I think it says there's only a handful of three-hour films, really, alongside The Godfather and The Lord of the Rings films. Yeah. I can't think of many more three-hour movies where I'm quite happy to watch it over and over. Yes. And it, it, I do, one thing, yeah, one, a quibble, another quibble. I'm not so keen on the... The ending, this one, it's pointed out again. This is spoilers here, guys. So if you haven't listened, maybe just skip right ahead to the Dark Tower. Um, <laughs> it, it turns out that Paul Edgecombe and John Coffey came into contact and it has given Paul Edgecombe a naturally long life. The The older Paul is 108 years old, he mm. says. Um, and he's watched all his friends and family pass away around him and what will, you know, then... The other woman, the woman he's talking to, she then dies as well. Not yeah. then and there, but <laughs> <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> he just knifes her because she knows his secret. That'd have been a real Stephen King ending, wouldn't it? Oh. Uh, he um, he says he sort of says, "Oh, you know," he narrates and says, oh, "I'm gonna, you know, I'll die eventually, I'm sure, but I'm just gonna keep." And it sort of he says, "I think what it is is that you know, because the, the, the Mr. Jingles, the mouse, is also yeah, came Dell's mouse that he ends up taking um, on is also there. At the, it's sixty-four years old as for, for a mouse. Um, I think I was reading somewhere that there's a Reddit theory that they used the maths on Mr. Jingles and worked out that Paul will live to be fifteen hundred years old, based on the fact that the mouse lived so many years longer than a mouse naturally lived. Yeah." There's a theory online that he's gonna he would live between wow. something like fifteen hundred and two thousand years old. And you just, what he'd look like, that's what I was gonna say. I wonder what he'll aging. look like. He because he looks like a an eighty whatever he's year old man. An yeah. Eighty five, eighty six year old man. So he would continue to age. I, I again that's not just verified. Kill, just kill yourself, wouldn't you? You would. Yeah. Um, I would I, I would hundred and eight is quite a long It's a long life. But I mean it, in the film it sort of said he's sort of like, This is my punishment. I um, Well in the story, in one of the serialized um parts of the story Paul watches his wife die in a car accident. Yes. And it, it, it within the prose, it says that he realised that his punishment for killing this miracle worker in John Coffey, mm. because he doesn't want to, does he? In no, the film, no, he even no. offers yeah. him, but John Coffey's sick of, it, sick of everything. Uh, but the punishment for taking that away from Earth is that he will have to watch his own close um, is that real, right? family and friends I'm... die. 
Yeah, I, I don't know if that logic entirely works. Why would Mr. Jingles be kept alive? But no. um, well, I've, the book I thought that my interpretation of the book is that they, it's, it's a far more simple explanation: is that anyone he heals just has an like a side long, effect, and, and, side and it would have been interesting longer, to find lot, out you know. um, about uh, Cromwell's wife who has the tumor. I know yeah. that we're kind of just flying. Yeah, sorry. Point, yeah, we're going, yeah. There. But anyway, yeah, I know. I I, I agree I that there's a idea, the, the idea, like, oh, I'm kept alive because it's my punishment. And he's like, oh, well, you know, and to explain away the mouse, they sort of say, oh, that was an accident. Yeah, I, I, I agree. <laughs> I think the film actually didn't even need that ending. I think he could have been an 80-year-old 80 80 year bloke or whatever, and it would have been just as powerful a story. I think mm. that that kind of like, and guess what? Yeah. There's a mental edge you to go it. go back to the King thing. You talk about King, King sort idea. of slightly... Uh, undercutting undercut, his own story. Know, the, the ending's not being so satisfactory. But anyway, it's... Uh, it's a great film. It's a great film, and certainly one you should watch. My dad will tell you. Yeah. <laughs> should we bob it? Yes. Uh, I'm going to go for Bob because I really do like it. It doesn't quite hit that perfection because of the quibbles mm. and because there are more than a few quibbles. There are a little bit like, oh, it yeah. tends to be a little bit long, even though you don't feel the three hours. There is, there's one more, which I know. Go on, then. I hadn't noticed before, but this is what happens when you study history. In, in uh, the warden's office as a portrait of FDR, mm. which is fine because FDR was the president at the time, except the portrait they use is one that was painted in 1947. Really, several years. A good, a good. Yeah, but that's because John on. Coffey had painted it. Dan, I uh, don't know if you know that, but oh, really? I, I <laughs> yeah. missed that deleted yeah. scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I agree. There are a few quibbles, narratively speaking, um, as well as artistically. <laughs> so uh, so for that, it brings a little bit down. Yeah, no. I also would give it four. It, it, it certainly there are very few films that will move you in the same way or have you sat there, you know. And consistently. You know, just you know, reacting with this film and caring so much about the characters that you're sat there with your hand over your mouth while one of them gets, you know, burned to death. Mm. Um, thinking, oh God, this is, you know, I know he's a murderer, but Jesus, this is someone shows some mercy. For, you, know, you wish you're there to like, just throw it off, turn off. Yeah, thing. it's an interesting kind of um, essay on justice. Yeah. Right, Dan, we conclude this podcast and this season in fact yeah with the dark tower which is a shame it really is <laughs> i feel <laughs> like we've done so much this season as well but yes to end it on this is it series four, season four we're on something now like something that, like that yeah. so season four concludes with a discussion on the most recent stephen king adaptation to date yes um by just a couple of weeks because it comes out in september we are going to talk about the dark tower the yeah. series of books that really is king's opus in some ways now for, i i'm not very i mean i'm not familiar with these books and mm-hmm. i sort of you know but I, i've read enough in the run-up to this film coming out my understanding is the dark tower series is is about eight books and they all center around the the dark tower which is, yeah. is a tower in the middle of the universe but Stephen, it's essentially creating a Stephen King multiverse or universe of, of so all like lots of characters from different books, pop lots up. of different genres. Um, he himself is a one character, of it. Yeah. yeah, and and all these the thing, things are linked. So uh, characters have the shine, which, which is, is the, the shining, the, the psychic powers, um, and hints that the various demons and and monsters that have turned up in other Stephen King novels are because of are, are in fact demons that have breached. The walls of the universe and oh, got wow. through. I think I, I, it's all—it's all kind of. He tries to knit it all together, as you say. It's his opus, uh, his magnum opus. Um, this and it all culminates not, though, really. in this this, yeah. this, 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 this broadly dull film. I've never really seen anything quite like it. 
I watched it a couple of hours ago. I should say to you now, <laughs> I watched it this morning in prep for the podcast. So I went into central London, uh, walked into the Empire, Cine World Empire um, in Leicester Square, and was surprised because it was in a, this tiny little screen, which is surprising because there isn't a huge gamut of new films out at the moment. Like Dunkirk is probably starting mm. to fade and things like that now. And, and they have got a few big screens in there, but they have chucked it in this tiny little screen. I was saying to Dan earlier, probably about, probably about 40 or 50 seats in there. I would say there's probably about 25, 30 people in, and a third of those had left by the end, just walked straight out. Which is even more surprising if you think that, and this is my real bugbear of this film, is that it's an eight... And these are big books as well. Aside from the first yes, novel, yeah. which I think is fairly slim, the rest of them are quite chunky and obviously have to be because of the reasons that you've just described. They, they turn this into a 90-minute movie and it feels like it was the whole thing. It's supposed to be a sequel to the books, which isn't really clearly oh, explained. I didn't know that. But you can kind of watch the, the film independently of knowing what happens in the books, I suppose, by okay. doing that. The, the final book, I think, ends with... with the gunslinger, Roland, um, played in the film by Idris Elba. I think he defeats the man in black, mm. played by Matthew McConaughey in the film. But then something happened. The point of, of the Dark Tower is that uh, the universe is always turning and time is always turning. So he, he has to go you back. Manipulate the time then. He has, or he fails at the last minute and has to go back and start the mission again. Oh, that's just crap. I don't know exactly. But anyway, so the, the, the film picks up from the essentially the end of the final book. Sort of, but I think some of the characters are still and some there. of the plot points from the first two books yeah, make up this film as well. It's just a mess, and, and as I say, it's not on top of it being a mess. It's just boring. It really is. I'm so indifferent about this film. I can't even say that it's a crap film because it's a crap. You know, it, it's rubbish just, anyway. It's yeah. just. It's just I just can't believe how quickly things went as well. Like I will say this: at least they didn't drag it out for three hours. Like I, I sat this down. Is like the, this is like the anti the Green Mile. It really it? is the anti Green Mile. It, we, you sit down and you are you're kind of like, oh, that, oh that that's the whole film now. Then, mm. and it really it it's it is terrible. Like every aspect of this film is bad. It I, I've read people saying at least it's got Idris Elba, at least it's got Matthew McConaughey in it. But neither of those films, like when you consider those actors, yeah, and what they're capable of doing, I can't think of a great Idris Elba performance in a film. But when I think of TV, he was Stringer Bell in The Wire. He he is John Luther so in the a great, series. That's a larger problem with Hollywood. I don't think they quite know what to do with Idris Elba. No, they, they really want to do something. Well, Idris they just Elba. keep coming back to this banal. Let's make him James Bond, and that and I I think that a lot mm. of that's hamstrung him it's almost like he's been typecast for a role he never played yeah. the poor bugger and you've got matthew mcconaughey who's acting the man in black like he's a sort of dodgy 90s tv magician he reminded me of when we spoke about power rangers that bloke who played the ooze fella yeah what's his name again can't remember his name um, ernie ooze or something <laughs> Freeman. paul freeman ivan ooze or something ivan that wasn't yeah. yeah but he he basically plays the pre-makeup version of him just without the fun. Yeah. It's just so much. It, it's just such a waste of a film. It, it is a I waste. I can't believe it. I mean, I'm glad it was only 90 minutes. It was such a waste. Because I, if it was I, longer, I'd be a lot more angry. I'll be honest, I haven't read the books. Uh, I, I follow someone on Twitter who I don't know, but is a massive, or seemingly massive Dark Tower fan. Is it Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he's just like bleeding across Twitter. Like, yeah. He's so sad uh, because he's waited seemingly his entire life for these films. They're a big deal for... They're a huge deal. For Stephen King fans. And I think they're quite a big deal within the fantasy sphere, aren't they? Yeah, they're they're very well... They're lauded, I believe. I mean, because there's all this 
stuff all these little you know he weaves in all these other characters and and Presumably none such, of which who appear in this film. Such effort went into putting those books together. Imagine someone doing this to and you. But apparently King says... I mean, I suppose he wouldn't say like otherwise, would he? But he apparently he's given the film a seal of approval. Yeah, I think that's like when um, Principal Skinner, uh, you know, with that episode <laughs> where the mafia have got in with the, the gun there. And it, yes, of course, I think this is going to be a trial. It's like James Cameron turned around saying Terminator Genesis was the real sequel to the T2. Um, I think it's one of those remarks yeah. they always live to regret. But, Poor King. Imagine decrying Kubrick's The Shining coming out for this and thinking, I just can't get it right. I just can't get this right. I mean, I, you know, this, we've, we've looked at three other films today where the characters are so, so interesting and, defined. and well defined and well written. And to have this where you, I don't give a fig about any of the characters. No, I don't know the characters, Dan. I feel like I kind of met them in passing at a bus stop whilst they were whirring right, I mean, past me. One character, his mum is burned to death. Yeah, he's get, he gets over that and, remarkably and I, quickly. I, I got over it as quickly as he did. I was, yeah. I was like, oh, oh, there you go. One of the core things that's wrong with this film, and there are many things that's wrong with this movie, yes. is that they seemingly retool this kind of smorgasbord of genre and fantasy and horror and western and everything they seemingly jettison that or recast it as a young adult adaptation it feels just like another divergent i feel like it has like been it has been uh you know the fangs have been ripped out by mm. making it a 12a i believe it's a 12a and i think we could have got a much more out of it if they'd upped the yeah. um, it, to a 15 i think it's just um, because everything happens so fast and that's strange criticism for a film because you know you a lot of these films you sit there and go geez how many hours have i got to sit in there for this but there is so much that happens in such a small amount of time uh and we're, we're told that this showdown between roland and the man in black is supposed to be this epic thing of the ages uh, and um that, that their their final showdown is about certainly not longer than about four minutes mm. i don't actually understand any of the story either i don't feel like they really did and it, it's funny because i felt that Apparently, well, apparently, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. They they spent six million on reshoots to make to to, to do to flesh out the backstory of Roland. Really, just test screenings. People were like, "Well, I don't, I don't understand know. his motives." I reckon they just bunged um, the president from twenty four. Yeah, they obviously got Dennis Haysbert in at yeah. that point. I think they were like come about, on, yeah, about two million went on Dennis Haysbert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, flying him him back in. But I, I I don't I didn't really get any of it to interest you, and it, it was really the antithesis of something like John Wick and John Wick Two, which seemingly has this towering flowing universe that they don't feel even the need to flesh out yeah because it's just there and it's mysterious and interesting they try and pull the same trick here but it's like look i john wick doesn't traverse universes and this one does i need to understand the physics of this what is going on what is the dark tower we're never even told what the dark tower is no, just that it stands the centre of the universe and it keeps everything together. But the, why? The, the, How? The best parts of this film are the Easter eggs to other Stephen King properties. Yeah. There's a there's a, a circus ride somewhere, a theme park ride somewhere with the words Pennywise on the top. Mm. There's a reference, uh, a code. They need a code to travel between these doorways between worlds, and one of the codes is 1408, which is of course the. the That's the, another bad the, Stephen King film. Good uh, book, but. And what's the other one? Well, there's uh, Tom. Uh, sorry, the actor's called Tom. The actor Tom Taylor playing whatever the kid is called. I've already forgotten. Um, Jake. Jake. He has the shine. They talk about his shine being pure. So, it, it, you know, and I think the rest of them they couldn't touch because of. Well, I just thought that was issues. crappy, though, to be honest with you, because I just thought that's just like 
there's just a laziness to that. It was like it just reminded me of all the other better Stephen King films and books. Yes, but that's what I'm saying. The best bit was like, oh, there's a little Easter to that thing. That that much better idea. Because um, when they started talking about The Shine, I was like, oh, that's The Shining. And honestly, for about seven minutes, which in this film is an alarming amount that's, of that's time. That's a third of the yeah, plot. Uh, I was just thinking about The Shining. <laughs> I really was. I went into a daydream about The Shining. Mm. So, that's saying so. The fact that you wouldn't start daydreaming about that horrible film. Yeah. Uh, that I started daydreaming about The Shining. I, th- I think it was actually Kubrick communicating with me. <laughs> get your coat and leave, mate. Leave, honestly, leave. you can get this for about three Watch quid on DVD the- now. Um, and the other, the other bits, I, I quite enjoyed... Because who doesn't ever really enjoy the fish out of water humour of someone in a place they don't really yeah. know? And the, the, the uh, it was just Thor, though, wasn't it? Didn't you get that? I felt that whole sequence. You're talking about the hospital bit, aren't you? Yeah. There was and the, the, all those bits where he's a bit. Well, it, it, it is a bit like, like Thor. Yeah, he's a bit like <laughs> Thor, but I like Thor. Yeah. I think Kenneth Branagh called up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it did make me laugh. The one bit that made me laugh is when they take pains to not show Roland's guns in the hospital. And he pays the doctor at the end for a yes. service. And then he goes, and bring my guns. <laughs> yeah. Admittedly, that brought a smile to my face. But um, again, after I finished daydreaming about The Shining, I thought, oh, this reminds me of Thor. I remember when Thor goes into it and I just went off. Well, I quite like the, do the animals still talk in this world. Yeah. There's no, that's a commercial. Yeah. What do you mean still? <laughs> yeah. That, there are some um, bits like that. But, but it's, it's like, just lazy, lazy, lazy cinema. Happened. You know, the reshoots, are, it, that's always a bad sign. Mm. Um that just seems to become the norm now with these things, though, doesn't it? You know, we're talking about Justice League and all of I wonder, that I mean, that's how going much, you know, on. It feels like, once again, you know, this is a film that was maybe made by committee rather than one person. Definitely, you um, can tell that. There's, there is definitely at least, I think, three probably different versions of this movie that exist. It's made me worried for uh, the Han Solo film. This film has Ron, Ron Howard as producer. Mm. And the next thing he's got on, on his slate is Solo. is Solo now, and he's stepped in to sort that out. Wow. Well, you did a great job with the Dark Tower, mate. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen King's lawyers just... <laughs> like the multi- Stephen King's the got the step there with, with Ron Howard who's got a gun to his back saying, I love this, this film. Is brilliant. This is a great adaptation. I like the my, Da Vinci Code my, as well. My, my yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's the, the thing, thing is that I've toiled on for 17 years. I just can't believe this, this was the product of like eight books in a 90-minute young adult film. And in fact, actually, the, I suppose one of the last things we talk about, something that Dad and I spoke about as, as I came into his house... Was uh, who who is this aimed at? This film. What's the demographic of this film? Yeah, because you were in. Oh the, yeah, I was saying, like the screening I was in, it was a, there was a mixture. It sounded like you had it screened in the I'm a Celebrity Jungle. <laughs> like there was that amount of different weird people in yeah, there. Yeah, there, there was an elderly couple in front of me with their with their thermos flasks and a blanket. There was a few people. The winners from Love Island. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a guy in motorbike leathers who came in, um, <laughs> firing into the crowd. Someone, <laughs> <laughs> a couple of teenage girls who I thought well, you you must be here for Idris Elba right? I can't mm. imagine I, mean, I don't want to judge a book by, the, by its cover but sure. I couldn't imagine, picture them as Stephen King fans there was me who was just there because I had to do it for this bloody podcast yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks Sony for not putting any press screenings on at, at reasonable times well I, I think again it's the culmination of that you know people before were saying where like is this film coming out this year because there was like one trailer and it only came out like five yeah. days before the film came out I'm not sure if a, they tried to bury it of course they did uh, they, were, uh, they don't think a poster was produced or something like that uh, and you know if we if we are kind of opening the curtain up I have it on good authority that um, various critical outlets tried to get this screening 11 or 12 times and were rebuffed by the producers and the the, 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 uh, the studio. Yeah. Oh my God, what a terrible movie this really is. 
Going back to what we were really discussing about the uh, Rotten Tomatoes scores, I have the scores for... I, mean, I just think this is very indicative um, and a, da- a damning indictment of this film. I know this film has got you know several years less of reviews against it, but... It's probably got more reviews than some of them now because every bugger can review on the internet. That's true, that's true, it's true enough. So Carrie, we've already mentioned, that's a 93% approval rating. And one thing I will say is that in order to get the approval rating, my understanding is that the reviewer has to rate it 60% or above. So three out of five uh, in order for it to be yeah, fresh. Everything, everything above 60% on Rotten Tomatoes is a, is a fresh film. Yeah. Um, so ni- how was it? 91? 93 for Carrie. So 93% of critics rated it to be three out of five or above. Mm, and a lot of them, a lot more, you know, very much above yeah. between 93. And this is just critics. This isn't the public. Yeah. 16% for Dark Tower. 16. 16. Even that seems high. Like I, yeah. I can't imagine anyone sitting and saying, yeah, that's three out of five. Oh, we've always been the champion of the three Bob movie where we've said, you know. This isn't a three Bob film. It, I can't see anything in it. I can't even really call this a film. <laughs> it, it feels like, um, you know what those trailers that we've had a go about before where everything you see in the trailer is in the film? Yeah. It feels like that, but for 90 minutes. This is a 90 minute. I've, maybe this is a trailer. Maybe this is a 90 minute trailer for the real The Dark Tower. I think this might be like kind out. of performance art or something, Dad. You know, Idris Elba signed up for the first. Um, God, it was awful. Uh, what, Bob's? Bob? <laughs> I, I think I have to give it one... Because I'm, I'm not sure we're allowed to give anything zero. Um, I, I, this is certainly one of the worst films. I can say that this is one of the worst films we've ever reviewed together. I, I, think. Feel, I mean, I, I do want to say, like, worst is a very is a strong word. Isn't yeah, it? And, you're right. It's a, it, it is a word that conjures up images. I mean, I, I'd just like to point out I'm so utterly indifferent to this film. Yeah, I, I'll agree with that, actually. It's a lot one of the Bob, film, and I just, because I just, cause I just think... I'll give it one bob because it's not a film, but it hasn't <laughs> angered me. You know, when we came out of, I remember one of the big ones, we came out with the 300 Rise of an Empire, yes. and I was just were, incensed by that. I was livid. really, I really was. I was just furious after that film. Whereas with this film, it didn't even really rob my time yeah. because I, because it was done in such a blink of an eye. I felt like I whirled round and, you know, like my hat was still spinning by the end of it. I was like, oh, what's going on I, there? I think the last film I gave one bob to was Pain and Gain. Mm. The, the, and the, that was a film that incensed you film. and that that film angered me and offended me mm. this film doesn't anger me it doesn't offend me in any way I just feel I don't like feel influenced I, by this film Dan I'm a bit annoyed that I wasted £11.60 to go and see it yeah what is that per minute <laughs> £11.60 <laughs> I think <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly not worth it no um, you know <laughs> it just it's such a shame. It it, it really. I'm is. hoping. I mean, I don't. I'm not. I'm not at all. Not. Uh, not a big fan of it. Um. Anyway. Uh. But I hope that that turns out to be a much better. I think adaptation. it will, just by virtue of the fact that it's not this 90 minute film masquerading as an eight book epic. If you think about how long Game of Thrones has been going on for doing yeah. for doing a less amount of books. It, I, I just can't even begin to imagine how this film even got greenlit. And it is a colossal shame. I think that it would be a more powerful one, Bob, film had I read the books and been fans mm-hmm. of them. Because yeah. I'm not au fait with the source material. That's why I'm kind of just, this is one big shrug. I think yeah. if I was a Stephen King aficionado who had put all that time reading these books and counting the days down for the Dark Tower to come out, I'd be oh, bloody... I'd- 
be looking furious. for revenge. I really would be. be like Roland, I'd be transcending multiverses to get to whoever directed it. Anyway, so that's that's one that. Yeah, one bob. Housekeeping. Don't have a jingle for that, Dan. No, never have, never will. This is the last piece of housekeeping for this season. Last piece of housekeeping until October, as is our custom. Yes, we're taking September off. <laughs> Much needed after the Dark Tower. Genuinely, as That's well. Just, oh. Yeah. Uh, if you're new to the podcast, Dan and I, we do these... It's between one and two a month. I think we <laughs> once said it was one, then it was two, and now it's now somewhere it's when, in between. When we can, it's yeah. as and when we can, we loosely have a season. It's a year, isn't it? Basically, isn't it? We do from October to August. Eleven take, months we work. We always have September off for yeah. a little bit of a recuperation, and then we come back. So uh, we find, we spend September wondering if David's going to renew us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where if we can be bothered, uh, and Dave actually wants us to do it again. We're assuming we're a lot on I mean, his yeah, behalf at the moment. We're, we're, we're saying we'll be back we might be back under a different name <laughs> different, presenters. different presenters but yeah so uh, we'll be back in october we haven't actually decided what we're going to do in october it's between two films at the yeah, moment isn't we're, it? we're still working that out but i can tell that some i mean both of the films are interesting films yes yeah, so it's going to come down to a flip of a coin uh, which i think is dave's method of renewal as well so there's some <laughs> nice poetry to that who won uh, which dan said that which dan said which dan said that that was incredibly a draw Really? Oh, okay. Two each. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. But that'll one, be back. One so thing I can promise. Will we go back to which Chris said this, or do you want me to continue with it? I think we, well, we, it seems fair to go back to which Chris said this. Okay. Well, what we'll do is we'll do a decider on October, because yeah. that'll get them back, Dan. There's a hook for you, guys. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's a hook right there. you can't wait to right find to out. The, right to the cheek. Uh, so, yeah, anyway, um, if you want to contact us, uh, remember, we are the official podcast of a larger arts site. Yeah. Yeah www.oneroomwithaview.com uh, if you want to contact us we are podcast at oneroomwithaview.com that's for the email you can follow us on twitter at oneroomwithaview it's numerical one like us on facebook one room with a view on twitter you are at mr orton and i'm at the preston night remember he is m-i-s-t-e-r it's been a, a good season though i've enjoyed myself it certainly has as always. it's been a season done it's been a season it's been something it's been something but until october Cheerio.